know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to speak with Dr. Manuel Teodoro, professor of public affairs at La Follette School of Public Affairs, to talk about water, environmental policy, and public utilities. We will also ask Professor Teodoro for his take on the breakdown of public utilities in Texas during the recent winter storm that left hundreds of thousands without electricity and heat for several days. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Teodoro. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Since this is your inaugural time on the podcast, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background in teaching and research and how you got to be really interested in the topic areas that you are an expert in today? When I was a child, I used to dream about water utility regulation and and how I could build a career studying the regulatory mechanisms of the Clean Water Act and Safe Drinking Water Act. Now, it, uh, like a lot of people, I think I sort of stumbled into the water sector, which is where a lot of my research is today. When I was a, a kid, I, I growing up, I was interested in politics and policy, and I was one of those political junkie kids. But I realized as a young adult that I, I have no filter and a very low tolerance for euphemisms. So elected office and a career in politics are probably not going to work for me. But I was still interested in public service. So I actually started my career as a working professional in the policy world. I got a Truman Scholarship and I got an MPA. And I started working in a consulting firm where I did economic analyses. And most of my clients were local governments, and a lot of the work I did was in water. And that's where I started learning a lot more about how water systems work, how they're financed, how they're governed. I became very fascinated with it. I was really successful with that firm, but I very quickly kind of got bored with it. And I found the, the work interesting, but my clients had this weird idea that because they were paying me, they should get to say what I do and what I work on. I, I found that deeply oppressive and limiting uh, in what I what I could do. So as a favor to a friend at that time, I would be talking about the, the late 1990s now. I led a, a course, an MPA course as an adjunct instructor, really loved it. So I decided to apply for some PhD programs to see maybe this academic career path would be a way to scratch that intellectual itch. So you know, fast forward, I, I got a PhD, I became a professor, I was on the faculty at Colgate University in upstate New York for six years, and then I was at Texas A&M for seven years, and now I joined the University of Wisconsin-Madison just a few months ago, and I have to say I was really drawn here more than anything else by the Wisconsin idea. I know a lot of folks sort of roll their eyes about it. To me, it's, it's a mission statement for my career. I really believe in the power of ideas and the, the potential for the kind of work we do as scholars to have positive impact on the communities around Wisconsin and uh, the rest of the world. So that's what brings me here. Wisconsin's a great place to study water for all kinds of reasons I'd I'd love to talk about. There's a proud tradition here of research on water and on water governance, and I'm I'm uh, proud to be part of that. Well, we're very happy to have you both here in Wisconsin and on the podcast. But 
Speaking of kind of your journey to Wisconsin, you mentioned that you spent some time in Texas before coming here. And at the time of recording, we've recently witnessed a huge public utilities failure in Texas that left thousands upon thousands without heat and electricity and led to several deaths. So before we start jumping into your research on your work in water utilities and water policy, could you maybe help us walk through that utilities crisis in Texas and help us maybe understand it a little better and how and why it happened? Yes, certainly. You know, I, I really loved living in Texas. Uh, it was it was a great place to be. Uh, I have a lot of warmth and fondness in my heart for, for Texas and all, and all my friends that I left there. And who knew that my first winter in Wisconsin was going to be easier to manage than the winter in Texas would have been. Yeah, I, I really feel for the folks in Texas struggling through uh, struggling through the problems they've been having there. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to answer your question with a caveat that I am not an expert on energy. The story is, of utility regulation broadly, I can certainly comment on that. So utilities are natural monopolies, which is a, 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 in economic terms, what that means is they're operations that are very capital intensive. They have high barriers to entry and huge economies of scale. All of that means that it doesn't make a lot of sense to have multiple electrical utilities, gas utilities, water, sewer, whatever utilities in a single community. You don't want to have to have parallel pipes running down the street for every utility company. So instead, we have communities that have just one water system, one electrical grid, one gas utility, and so on, because it's much more efficient to run things that way. Now, the trouble with that approach is that those monopolies don't face market competition. So left to their own devices, and basic economic theory tells us that utilities will tend to set their prices very, very high, and they'll tend to deliver very poor quality service uh, because they don't have to compete for their customers. So instead of letting markets work, we use regulation. We rely on sound regulation to make utilities set their prices at fair levels and have a very good service quality, have good service quality in ways that sort of substitute for that market condition. Quick aside, the whole concept of utility regulation was actually invented in Madison at the University of Wisconsin a little over 100 years ago, about 110, 120 years ago, when a geology professor named Charles Van Heist came up with an idea for uh, regulating uh, natural resource utilities. And at the time, he was thinking about energy and he was thinking about water. And he wrote a book about it. He later went on to do some other things. And he had a friend who was a guy named Bob LaFollette, who was influential. And the state of Wisconsin created the first public utilities commission in the world in 1907. So that's, that's a fun piece of local history, but that's the idea. The idea behind it was, well, let's make utilities work for the public by regulating them in ways that would substitute for these market failures. Okay, so that's, that's a lot of background. It's a long windup for the pitch here. Oversimplifying the Texas case a lot, what seems to happen was it, a, a case of regulatory failure. There were past severe weather events in Texas that showed that the grid was vulnerable. The Texas Public Utilities Commission, which was modeled after the Wisconsin model, but not as aggressive in some ways, uh, the, the Public Utilities Commission of Texas looked at ordering utilities to strengthen their weather resilience, but the utility companies fought back against those regulations and the PUC more or less let them off the hook. So gas and electric utilities in Texas 
failed in cold weather in ways that were entirely predictable. This is something that they saw coming a few years ago. Uh, and most of Texas is on its own electrical grid. Most of the state is not connected to the eastern or western electrical grids that serve most of the rest of the country. And so companies, without being forced to weatherize, didn't weatherize because they faced no market competition. You as a customer could not say, well, gosh, I want to go to a more reliable company. You can't do that because it's a natural monopoly. The Texans relied on the PUC to do that work. The PUC failed to do that work. And in fairness to the PUC, weatherizing in a robust way would have meant higher rates. So customers tend to really like low service rates until there's a disaster like this one. And then suddenly the rates seem really low. And gosh, we would have all been willing to pay a couple pennies more per month for an aggressive weatherization scheme. Uh, but that's, I think that's a long, long way of saying it's a regulatory failure. Uh, and that was sort of baked into the way Texas was regulating its utilities. So what can we learn from the failure in Texas? And like, what, what are some of the lessons that we can pull from that and apply to how we're like modernizing our energy grid as we're moving forward? Sure. Well, again, with a caveat that I'm not an energy expert, the short answer is better regulation. The PUC model, or as we call it in Wisconsin, the PSC model, Public Services Commission, it works very well if regulators force the utilities to make the right investments. Uh, that's the big if. There is always a danger of what uh, we call regulatory capture, and that's where the utility regulators become a little too chummy, a little too close with the utilities industry. Uh, so I, it, that's a danger of PUC regulation. But the PUC model is supposed to address exactly this problem. In addition to regulating rates to uh, guard against monopolistic abusive pricing, they're also supposed to guarantee service quality or help protect service quality. And, uh, you know, hopefully, well, I'm not hopefully, I'm quite certain every utilities commissioner around the country is watching very closely, not the, just the eyes of Texas, the eyes of the nation are upon Texas right now. Uh, watching the, to see what's unfolding there to be to try to ensure that doesn't happen in their own states. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think that's going to be really useful to both us and our listeners, helping us kind of navigate this this current event. But now we'd really like to move into your work on water utilities specifically, and also the role of water in President Biden's environmental policy. First, to kind of just get us all on the same page. Could you just kind of lay out the basic issues of water utilities and utility policy and why you think we should be talking about it more? And then also you've made the case that water might be one area that could bring a deeply divided Congress together. Why do you think that? And could you explain that idea a little bit? Sure. I mean, you've asked some very, very big questions there. What are the issues with water? Um, water is, uh, is endlessly fascinating for a lot of reasons. One of them that I think is surprising to a lot of folks who are not familiar with the water sector is just how complex and fragmented the governance of the water sector is. At the federal level, we have multiple agencies that regulate water, most notably the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, but also a number of other agencies, including probably most notably the Army Corps of Engineers is heavily involved in regulating water and water quality across the country. And then you have 50 states and hundreds of tribal authorities that are also involved in governing water. And then we have more than 50,000 community water systems in the United States. And those are managed collectively by something like, you know, maybe 30 or 40,000 water utilities. That's an order of magnitude larger than the energy sector. 
if you take all of the electrical and gas utilities together, you're talking about a total of something like four or 5,000 organizations. There are 30, 40, 50,000 water utilities. So there's massive fragmentation. And most of those water utilities are very, very small. They serve populations of a few hundred to maybe a few thousand. And then you've got a handful of utilities that serve uh, lots and lots and lots of people. So it's a big, complex field. We've got some agencies that regulate surface water quality, others that, age, that, govern, um, that, that govern drinking water utilities. We have separate programs, uh, regulatory programs for sewer on, and water. It's all very, very complicated. In terms of why water ought to be a priority, this is what you asked me, right? Why, why water should be a priority in the Biden administration? Water unifies. In an era of deep partisan polarization, you know, you don't have to be a political scientist to know that public opinion is polarized on a whole lot of issues, uh, you know, polarized by party. If you go back 40 years, there was not much difference between Republicans and Democrats and how they thought about environmental protection. And arguably, the most significant environmental protection laws in the history of the United States happened under Nixon. However, starting in the 80s, we start seeing a, a divide between Republicans and Democrats and how they think about the environment. And that starts to widen really rapidly in the 1990s. Today, it's very, very wide, and the largest gap is on climate policy. Now, many Democrats see climate change as an existential threat, uh, maybe the single most important policy issue in the whole world. Meanwhile, a lot of Republicans don't even think of it as a problem, right? don't even recognize climate change as an issue. So you got this tremendous gap between Republicans, Democrats, and that's led political scientists, many of them to conclude that partisan polarization is a barrier to environmental policy. But the thing is, we don't see that partisan gap on water issues. We see it on climate. We don't see it on water. Republicans and Democrats don't diverge much at all in their attitudes toward uh, pollution protections, water pollution protection, for example. And basically, there's no difference at all on drinking water. Look, everybody likes to drink water. Everybody likes to take a shower, even Republicans, right? They like to put their kids in the bathtub too. And who do you think the sports fishermen are? Right. This is a potential of a great unifier. Wisconsin, another great example. I have to believe that water is important to people in every corner of this state. A third of this state's population relies on private well water. So groundwater protection is a huge issue for people in this state. We border on two great lakes. I mean, it's just it's, it's got to be an issue that's important for everyone. So we're at this moment when almost every issue of national scope is extremely polarized. It's tearing the republic apart. Policies that address water pollution and drinking water quality have an opportunity to unite left and right, urban and rural interests. You know, the Biden administration has made a great show of its commitment to climate policy with a lot of statements, some strategic appointments to the bureaucracy. Now, politically, that's going to satisfy a lot of Democrats, but it's kind of a red flag to a Republican bull. And you might be able to win some legislation in the short run with somewhat democratic control of both chambers. I, I emphasize somewhat uh, because the control over the, the Senate is quite tenuous, but that's likely to very aggressive moves on climate are likely to blow back hard in midterm congressional elections. But a move to address water pollution and especially drinking water quality would probably find significant support in rural communities and constituencies, including an awful lot of Republicans. So I see it as an opportunity to make some real progress on water specifically, but it's also an opportunity to heal the nation's political wounds, to demonstrate that it's still possible to develop 
effective public policy in a bipartisan fashion. And here's the best part. If you really think climate change is the biggest issue, is the most important thing, it turns out that an awful lot of what we want to do to protect water is also really good for the climate, for controlling greenhouse gases. I'm thinking about things like aquifer protection, reducing reliance on coal, eliminating coal extraction, watershed management, wetland restoration, sustainable agriculture, all these things that are good for reducing greenhouse gases are also good for protecting the water and vice versa. So you can frame these things. I can say, let's get rid of coal mining and call it climate policy. Or I can say, let's get rid of coal mining and call it surface water protection in West Virginia. One of these things is gonna unify and one of these things is gonna divide. And so what I'm suggesting is by addressing water quality, you can address climate and you can do it in a politically sustainable way. Absolutely. And that's really interesting. You just mentioned West Virginia because I just finished reading the Buffalo Creek mining disaster. So that's like really in my head right now. Anyways, can you give the listeners a little bit of a look into how the Biden administration is approaching the water issue differently than the Trump administration did? Well, it's a little early to say. Right. The Biden administration has only been in office for, well, I guess about a month now on the date that we're recording this. And most of the appointees are still in interim positions. They haven't officially been confirmed. So I want to be very careful here about what we what we think is happening with the Biden administration. What we can say looking back, however, looking at the ship from the Obama team, to the Trump team, and now looking forward to the Biden team, you know, a lot of the Trump administration's work was rolling back rules that were put in place by the Obama administration. And I think we can reasonably expect the Biden team to then roll back the rollback and probably bring us to something that looks a lot like what the Obama administration had done. Uh, We see that I think probably most notably for the water on the water side of things is something called the Waters of the United States rule. So the Clean Water Act written in 1972 protects, uh, quote, the waters of the United States, unquote. Now, Congress was very aggressive and ambitious with this law, but decided to leave it to the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers to define what exactly are the waters of the United States, which it turns out is kind of a hard thing to answer, right? When the federal government first started managing water resources in the 1890s, waters of the United States meant navigable rivers and lakes, places it was shipping was the concern. But since the 1970s, there's been a growing appreciation of just how interconnected all of our hydrological systems are. So you could be looking at a, an irrigation ditch in central New York that actually connects to the Chesapeake Bay. So what exactly is the water of the United States? If we know that a pollutant in central New York is going to make it into Chesapeake Bay, we've got water quality problems in Chesapeake Bay. Maybe we need to think about whatever's happening upstream. The Obama administration developed a rule that was very expansive in its definition of what the waters of the United States were and issued that rule in 2015. In 2020, uh, in its last months of office, in office, the Trump administration reversed that rule and now has a much more restrictive definition of what the waters of the United States are. I don't want to get into all of the details because they're not important, but the important thing for our conversation is that's a serious whipsaw in a few years. We're going from a, a very expansive definition to a very narrow definition. Presumably, the Biden administration is going to return to something like the Obama era 
definition. This is a terrible way to manage environmental policy. If every four years, we're gonna get new definitions of what the waters of the United States are, it's very hard for environmental regulators to, to do their jobs. It's also hard on businesses and anyone else who might have to comply with these rules if they don't know what the rules are or they think the rules might change in a couple of years when a new president takes over. So I, I think we're gonna see more of this whipsawing and I'm, and I'm hoping probably hopelessly, uh, hoping, hopefully uh, naively hoping that Congress provides more guidance on, on these questions. And so we'll ha have less of this whipsawing from one administration to another. The other thing that I'll, I'll mention very quickly, a profound difference between the Biden administration and previous administrations is a very clear and consistent emphasis on environmental justice. That's not something we even saw under the Obama administration. The, the Biden administration has made environmental justice a, a significant part of its environmental priorities on every, you know, whether we're talking about on, uh, air or water or soil, toxic waste, any dimension, they have um, been sending strong signals that environmental justice, uh, racial and socioeconomic and ethnic equity are important priorities for the administration. I, I see that as a very positive development, and I'm hoping that it takes the form of distributional analysis uh, to accompany traditional cost-benefits uh, analysis in rulemaking. My worry is that the EJ priority will end up being interpreted as a purely procedural matter, that we'll have more meetings, we'll have more hearings, and maybe we'll have more panels with more diverse-looking faces but we won't necessarily change the rules that, that come out at the end. So my hope is that we have real serious analysis that goes into rulemaking that looks at distributions across race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. Uh, and, and I think that would be a tremendous move forward for the uh, environmental protection regulatory regime. To ask a quick follow-up on that last part there, what might rule or regulation revisions look like to achieve a environmental justice goal like that? Like you talk about how there ought to be meetings and there ought to be stuff, work being done to get there and get to these policies. And I, of course, don't want to diminish the value of that, but you also emphasize that there needs to be real actual policies rather than just discussions getting there. At this stage in the game, based off of what we know now, what might those policies look like or what might some examples of those policies be? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I use the term distributional analysis. That's really what I mean. There are some policies that may be cost beneficial on average or not cost beneficial on average or in total that are nonetheless important for environmental justice purposes because they impact certain populations in specific ways. So the way cost benefit analysis works usually is that we take all the costs of a policy, we take all the benefits of the policy, and we compare them. Now, I've over, oversimplified greatly, but it could be that there are certain environmental policies that we think are probably, you know, like an environmental protection that's not cost beneficial on average, but it could be very, very beneficial to a small population that would suffer tremendously without the regulation. So it could be very costly uh, for, well, not very costly. It could be it could be not so beneficial for some parts of the country, maybe majority of the country, but a small population, maybe an isolated ethnic population in a rural part of the country might really need this regulation in order to uh, to, to maintain its health and environmental quality. Well, we, we ought to look at that. 
is what I'm suggesting. And that alongside cost-benefit analysis, we're also going to look at distributional analysis. One of the things I like to tell my students is justice is what happens in the tails of the distribution. It's not what happens on average. It's what happens in the tails of the distribution. What's going on for the outliers? So most people are probably, you know, certain rules on drinking water. You might be fine with the water treatment that you're getting in a large city today, but how, does th how do things look in the South Rio Grande Valley in Texas? How do they look in rural communities or tribal communities in Arizona, right? The, how, how do things look there? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask alongside whether things are net beneficial on average. We need to look at how they're impacting you know, minority populations and poor populations across the country. Those are all very, very interesting points. Hopefully, as the administration goes on, maybe we see some of those plans come up. We'd, we'd love to have you back at some point to chat about the specifics. But for now, what we do have is a new report about California's voluntary surveillance program for monitoring people who waste water, which, you know, in other words, is kind of uh, snitching on your neighbors for wasting water. I think this is a very, very interesting plan. And as we know, the states are laboratories for democracy, where oftentimes policies are tried out before adopted or modified for federal level application. So could you tell us about this policy and the report on it, its findings, and maybe what you'd recommend based off of this study? Sure. Yeah, that, you know, the snitch is a, is a fun word. Um, water snitching, uh, the polite term in public policy is participatory surveillance, which is a nice way of saying snitch on your neighbors. Uh, so th this was a study that came up as part of uh, a look at the severe drought that hit the state of California from 2014 to 2017. And I, I worked on this with a, uh, Yu Long Zhang at Renmin University in China and David Switzer at the University of Missouri. What we did, what happened is during that drought, California did, had a very, very severe drought, the worst drought by some records in, in thousands of years. So the state did a lot of things and imposed some, some restrictions on the use of water. And it also invited public reporting on those restrictions. So they set up 1-800-hotlines uh, and public waste reporting portal. You could use your cell phone and had an app that you could use or a web portal to, to report water waste. And over three years, Californians responded really enthusiastically. They, they reported 485,000 cases of water waste over three years. So Yulong, uh, David, and I analyzed those reports. We were interested in where they were happening. Like who, who's doing these reports? And why do some communities get more reporting than others? And we were, of course, ultimately interested in whether that led to any greater conservation. Uh, the short answers are that we found that there, as you'd expect, water waste reports correlated with scarcity as the drought got worse, reporting got more, uh, more frequent. And as the drought war you know, got less severe, we got less reporting. The more interesting thing from a sort of political standpoint is that we saw significant differences between the type of utility that was managing water conservation. If you have city utilities, municipal governments got the most reports, followed by special districts, and investor-owned water systems got the fewest water waste reports. We think that that's about visibility. We think that, that people are used to looking at city governments and thinking they're supposed to be responsive. They associate it with public safety, like police and fire. So maybe that was more natural for folks to make those reports. The other thing that we saw was that water waste reporting, sort of the snitching, happened more in, in communities that had high levels of education 
and that had high levels of political participation and partisan competition. So places where Republicans and Democrats were narrowly divided in terms of registered voters in the community had more waste reports. Now, the fun version of that story is, oh, partisans are tattletailing on each other. I'm I'm getting back at that Democrat next door and he's stupid Hillary Clinton sign by reporting him for water race. Like, we don't actually think that that's what's happening here. Uh, what we think is happening is that water waste reporting is a kind of a form of political participation or civic engagement. And so populations that are more accustomed to participating in politics are also going to do things like participate in surveillance programs. So we know that voter uh, participation goes up in places that are politically competitive. So that sort of stands to reason. We think it's, it's, a, it's an effect of civic engagement more generally. But the sort of the big punchline to the whole thing is that we did find that there was an effect on, or it seemed to be an effect on conservation. Uh, An increase of one report per thousand per month correlated with a, about a half a percent increase in water conservation. Now, that may not seem very much, California's a big state. Over the course of the drought, if every community out there had one more waste report every month, that would have resulted in a savings of about 32 billion gallons, which is enough to serve San Francisco for about a year and a half. So we're talking about a lot of water when you aggregate it all up. So in terms of recommendations, I think what comes out of our study is something like a conditional endorsement of participatory surveillance. It seems to help in terms of reducing water waste and, and encouraging conservation but it's also significantly correlated with a lot of these social and political variables. So we need to recognize that different kinds of communities are gonna respond to participatory surveillance calls in different ways. And we also sort of wonder about the broader effect of asking the public, sort of enlisting the public in enforcement of a regulation. And that's not a question we can answer in this study, but I do worry a little bit about what we're really doing when we tell people we want you to rat out your neighbor for wasting water. Like, are, are we, are we going to be undermining the social fabric in some important way? Maybe, maybe not, but it, it's, a, it's a question that I ponder and gives, gives me some hesitation in, in being very uh, enthusiastic about suggesting that we adopt this kind of program universally. As a quick follow-up, so as you're looking at this and as you're looking at conservation efforts in California and elsewhere, is this kind of pointing towards a, an incoming water crisis, especially in California? Yeah, well, California is looking down the barrel at another drought year. So certainly for communities that are suffering from extreme drought conditions, these are very serious questions. And in very severe conditions like we saw in California in, say, 2015 or 2016, every little bit of conservation helps. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, you're sort of emptying the playbook. Let's do everything we can to try to conserve water. What kind of effect it would have elsewhere? You know, it's hard to say, but certainly the evidence out of California suggests that a participatory surveillance effort can be an important part of enforcement. Look, I, I always like to say that a regulation without enforcement is basically a suggestion. And so the alternative is to put the regulations in place and hope people comply or spend money on enforcement officers, right? So you send people from the local governments out to monitor people's water use. And we saw that happen in California. Some California communities did have effectively water cops who went out and 
check for people complying with the irrigation rules and the outdoor water use rules and would write people fines if, if in tickets, basically like a, a parking ticket, but you got a water ticket, similar kind of thing. Uh, so can it work elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, we, th- we think it probably can. The nature of the water challenges vary considerably. Wisconsin, in, with the rarest of circumstances, we don't have a water supply problem here. It's not that there's not enough. We got Lake Superior just north of here. There's plenty of water. The challenges have to do with infrastructure and then, of course, water quality, making sure that that pollution doesn't uh, foul our our lakes and streams. I am really glad you brought that up because as another point before we get to the question about your follow-up panel, I wanted to ask, in the for the last last year, Governor Evers of Wisconsin declared it like the year of clean water for Wisconsin. And in his new budget for this next, this upcoming biennium, he is planning to invest a lot into, I've heard people say it out loud, but I'm just, it's PFAS, PFAS or something. Um, Are these initiatives that the governor is moving forward with, along with like replacing lead service pipes? Are these the kinds of things that like you are talking about and researching as you're looking at water utilities? Yes, definitely. So the way people pronounce that typically is PFOS, and I can't pronounce the underlying chemical name that that stands for, so don't feel bad about that. Yeah, it's it, PFOS are synthetic chemicals that, that are persistent in the water column. So in other words, they, they take a long time to degrade or they just don't. So it's very difficult to treat water. Right now, there are no Federal Safe Drinking Water Act regulations Treating for PFAS, you know, I'm, I'm not an engineer, so I want to be careful what I say here. Uh, treating for PFAS is hard. It's expensive. It's prohibitively expensive for very small water systems, at least with the current technology. So it's an important issue, though, because we see significant health effects of, of PFAS uh, chemicals. So, yeah, I mean, the, the federal government over the last few years under the Trump administration has issued some health guidelines, but has not moved very aggressively to regulate PFAS uh, under the Safe Drinking Water Act. That's left it to the states to address the issue. And a number of states uh, are moving forward to try to develop regulations for PFAS, along with things like lead service line removal programs. Yeah, I think these are these are very important priorities. I'm I'm not a chemist or an engineer, so I want I'm I'm not ready to help give advice on those fronts, but when it comes to, to governance and administration. Yeah, that's a big part of what I'm interested in addressing. Definitely. Cool. Well, turning back now to your role here in the La Follette School, you were recently on a panel uh, with colleagues and you were discussing the health of democracy, however you want to define that. And a lot of your colleagues were not as optimistic as you. Can you tell us why you were a little bit more optimistic about the health of democracy? Yeah, you know, I think I th- I'm, I'm an optimistic guy by nature, I think is probably the, the easy answer to that question. I actually don't disagree with my fellow panelists on really any of the substance of the points that they were making then. Uh, look, our, our democratic institutions are in a tough condition right now. The scenes that we saw in January with the, the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration, some of the, you know, January 6th. Um, most notably, but also that really the entire period of time from election day up through inauguration day. So it's ugly stuff. We are going through a stress test. You know, that that panel had the the title, you know, the health of our democracy. And I like that metaphor. The American democracy is, is American democracy is not super healthy at the moment. It really isn't. And it's in a tough situation, but it's not dead. Right. And as I as I said that night, 
If I'm optimistic, it's because, look, medical researchers are not paid to declare that a disease is incurable. And a political scientist should not be paid to declare that democracy is dead, right? That, that that's, we should be looking for clues at what's working and how to nurse our patient back to health. For all of the disastrous events of January 2021, the Republic held together. And we've had worse moments as a Republic in our history. And so let's look at what's working and how we can nurse our patient back to health. You know, bureaucracy, I argued that night. Look, I study bureaucracy. When I'm not studying water, I study public management. So this is perhaps self-serving and perhaps myopic on my part. But I look at the American Republic and I see that the bureaucracy has been a centripetal force holding together the country. If you think about just January 6th and what happened and unfolded that day, Congress didn't hold the Republic together. The courts didn't hold the Republic together. Goodness knows the president didn't hold the Republic together. Who was it? The Capitol Police, the National Guard, state elections administrators saved the Republic, not the president or the Congress or the courts. So call it professionalism or call it simply bureaucratic inertia. We have administrative systems that held up, that followed the rule of law when given a choice the people who held the guns decided to serve the Constitution, not the president, not the man, but the Constitution. So the Republic isn't dead yet. And I'd argue that, that the bureaucracy has a big part, has to get a big part of the credit for that. It's in no small part to the administrative apparatus of government at every level. So let's use that as a point of departure, I say, to rebuild democracy, to rebuild faith in our institutions. Let's get the basic services like utilities regulation. Let's get that right. And, and thereby restore faith in democracy, because that's what we can do. Get, get the basics right, get the things that, that unify us right, uh, and then hopefully rebuild legitimacy and make those other branches of government work better. And we're starting to run low on time. And of course, we want to be respectful of your schedule and everything. But we also want to ask kind of a, a follow-up question related to that, because as you were speaking on, we should look at democracy and see what's working and see what's not, rather than just pronouncing it dead. But in a blog post, post of yours in January, you wrote, and I'm going to quote here, inefficient inequitable and maddeningly slow, America's fragmented administrative institutions are saving the Republic before our eyes, end quote. That is a much more positive take than we've heard last year. <laughs> and maybe even the inverse of a take that many of our other interviewees have discussed on the podcast. And my question is, you've already been speaking on how these bureaucratic institutions, administrative institutions, maybe the foundational bedrock or at least the unwavering bulwarks of democracy in the face of these other challenges and in institutions is it fair to apply that analysis to our legislative institutions as well because we could also make the argument that they are quite inefficient quite inequitable and of course maddeningly slow should we also maybe be a little bit more optimistic about Congress being rather lethargic? Or do you think that we can only really be optimistic about the bureaucracy in this manner? Well, I, I, I got to admit, Congress is probably the place where it's hardest for a sunny optimist like myself to be optimistic. 
<laughs> the institutional headwinds against unity in Congress, even functional coalition building in Congress are very, very, very strong. When I think about ways that we might fix Congress, I think strangely bringing back earmarks and pork barrel spending might help sort of grease the wheels of politics a little bit. I think serious reform to the filibuster rule in the Senate could help. But yeah, Congress is inefficient, inequitable, and maddeningly slow. And it's harder to see the way forward. You know, when I wrote that, I wrote that as the Georgia election, a Senate election was underway. And the count was underway, hadn't been reported yet. What I noticed was a lot of folks, critics of of sort of the, the state of American democracy, complaining really from the night of the election up through the night of the, the national election in November, up through the, the, the Georgia special election in January, complaining about how slow the reporting was. And gosh, couldn't we start counting these absentee ballots ahead of time and the mailing in ballots ahead of time? And I, I kept thinking, you know, guys, that's a feature, not a bug, right? Slowing down the process is not a bad thing if it means you get the numbers right. And I'm not sure that counting votes ahead of time is such a great idea if you think that there's any chance that the early vote tallies are going to accidentally get released publicly, right? It, you can, it's it's easier to, easy to imagine a lot of counterfactuals. Let me throw a couple at you. One is, what if we started counting earlier? Do we really have faith that every elections agency in the country was going to keep that news under wraps and that states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Arizona, that no word of the early vote tallies was going to get out? Now, we know that voters vote strategically. If they start hearing that something's happening ahead of time, well, that might change their their approaches. It might change, it might change the way that campaigns mobilize voters. I'm not sure that that would be healthy at all, and would introduce a great deal of mischief. If it takes a couple days to get the count right for the a gubernatorial, senatorial, or presidential election, let's go ahead and take a couple of days. It's also maybe going to give people a chance to cool off a little bit and maybe not go out and commit acts of violence uh, as a result of politics. So I see the slowness as a, as a feature, not a bug. The other thing with, with um, the, the other counterfactual I want to think a little bit about is federalism. Okay, federalism gets a bad rap in political science, and there's a, there's, you know, there are good reasons for that. It's inefficient, inequitable, and maddeningly slow often. It's terribly, terribly fragmented and causes all kinds of bad things. And there have been certainly lots and lots of observers who have very correctly pointed out that federalism allows for a great deal of mischief. It allows local and state elections officials to do things like disenfranchise people. So I am all for aggressive enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. However, I don't know that federal administration of elections would be a very good idea. Think of this counterfactual. Imagine if there was a U.S. Bureau of Elections whose head was appointed by the president of the United States and served at the pleasure of the president, who followed executive orders from the president serving in his capacity as chief executive. What would the date, what would November through January have looked like with a Trump appointee serving in that role? If we had a federal elections bureau staffed by presidential appointees. I shudder to think about what that would have looked like. Or for that matter, take it back a a cycle before that. What if the Obama team was running the federal elections and you have a very close race with a Trump versus Hillary Clinton uh, uh, election 
would anyone have, we already had problems with people questioning legitimacy of that outcome. If the opposition party is controlling the election at a national level, it's a recipe for illegitimacy and the way that people perceive the outcome of, of an election. What happened in Georgia is you had Republican state elections officials governing a state where Democrats won these statewide elections. And they could certify those elections in the face of opposition from national Republican officials because they were local officials, because they had to look their neighbors and colleagues in the face the next day and uh, stand up for them. That very fragmentation is what gave legitimacy to the outcomes of those elections in places that may not, uh, where a lot of voters may not have liked the outcomes of the elections. So I, I see that federalism as kind of a, a, another bulwark, as you put it, against mischief. The other thing is, there's 3,000 counties in the United States running elections. It's really hard for Russian hackers to attack all 3,000 of them, especially when a lot of them have really terrible systems that would be hard to hack. So again, the inefficiency, the inequity, and the, and the slowness are features, not bugs. As we're coming up on time, is there anything we didn't ask you today that uh, you would really like to get on the pod and make sure that people know? Sure. And I think this brings us full circle back to talk about utilities regulation in Texas and, and in Wisconsin. Look, I want to say this about, about utilities. One of the central problems we have with utilities of any kind is that the price is much more visible than the quality, right? People know exactly how much they're paying for that utility service when they get the bill every month. Quality, how, do I, how, do, how robust is my electrical grid? I have no idea until a storm happens. Then I find out. Right. But I only find out if things go terribly wrong. If things don't go terribly wrong, I figure eh, it's probably fine. Now, maybe we just barely missed the disaster. I have no way of knowing. So this is the fundamental problem of utilities regulation. Price is visible, quality much harder to observe. So one of the political pressure will always be for low prices, and that will take with it low quality and low resilience. So we need to find better ways to communicate both quality and price to the public. And that's a big part of what I'm hoping to do here in Wisconsin is help this state uh, better capture uh, service quality so that the voters and the elected officials of this state can make wiser decisions about how we invest in those critical systems. And of course, the last thing we want to ask you before we let you go is to all of our guests, we've been asking them in these dark, dark times, just what's one thing that you're hopeful about? these days? Well, I think you've been hearing it from me. Maybe you gotta, I'm less, less dark and gloomy than most of your guests. And, and, and if, if it helps, I can, I can be gloomier next time. I, I, think, I think the thing that gives me hope is that Americans are waking up to the importance of basic services and how, just how crucial they are to the legitimacy of the state and everything that we do. You know, when I started in political science, and I tell people I work on, on utilities regulation and water governance and municipal policy, I'd get either either eye rollings or, or, you know, sort of groans and, and, you know, or glazed eyes or, 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 or uncomfortable staring at the shoes because nobody thought this stuff was important. Well, the last few years, we've been learning more and more just how important these things are. I never have to explain to anybody why studying water or now electrical grid you, you know, regulation is an important thing. So I'm sort of optimistic. I get hope because people are waking up to how important these issues are 
and we have opportunities to make people's lives better and make the institutions of the republic function better, knit together the torn fabric of the state by doing a better job with these basic services. I think the opportunity's there for the leaders who are willing to take the risks to make it happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Teodoro. It has been awesome and super informative to have you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.